The genius of the Biden administration's foreign policy is at last becoming clear. For years, many people believed that President and venal houseplant Joe Biden was a cynical buffoon who blew whichever way the political winds were blowing, then switched direction and lied about it in keeping with his dishonest history of repeatedly plagiarizing the works of others, shamelessly inventing heroic stories about his past, and playing so fast and loose with slander, he was regarded as the creator of the scurrilous political attack known as Borking, while at the same time, he was plausibly suspected of pocketing 10% of his family's influence-peddling racket, all until he devolved into the maundering idiocy of an old age aggravated by a lifetime of moral rot, after which he colluded with a corrupt media to finagle his way into the presidency, where he became a model of incompetence, stupidity, and sneering nastiness, while both the nation he was chosen to lead and the world around him fell into dysfunction and disarray as he lapped at ice cream cones and hissed weird platitudes as if he were some seven-year-old who was possessed by one of the lesser demons, like Belial or Nancy Pelosi, and thus abandoned his, his administration to the socialists who use him as a barely sentient cover for their conspiracies to destroy America. But while some people believed that, other people believed other things. Maybe they just weren't paying attention. I don't know. Now, however, it's become clear that beneath Joe Biden's mask of blithering amoral incompetence lies a cunning master of strategic foreign policy who has expertly maneuvered the international power players as if they were merely pieces on a gigantic chessboard, and he was Bobby Fischer, who also spouted a lot of bizarre nonsense and probably had some kind of personality disorder. For instance, some of the simpletons and fools who are usually presumed to make up my audience may have been gulled into thinking that Biden made some kind of mistake when he abandoned Afghanistan in chaos and blood, leaving tens of millions of dollars worth of American aircraft, armored vehicles, and high-tech defense equipment in the hands of slavering medieval Taliban terrorists, and thus leading evil Russian tyrant Vladimir Putin to conclude the American president was both a weakling and a dimwit, and that Russia should feel free to invade Ukraine. Ha <laughs> ha, but to those of you misguided clowns who thought that, I now say, ha ha ha. Ha ha. Because... Obviously, like the chain he wrapped around his fist when he went to confront Corn Pop, this was all part of Biden's brilliant plan. Now, when Putin, tricked into believing in America's weakness, does invade Ukraine, if Biden wants to arm the Ukrainians so they can fire uselessly at the Russian war machine before it lays waste to their nation and enslaves them, instead of shipping American weapons the nearly 5,000 miles from the U.S., Biden can instead simply ask the Taliban to send our weapons the mere 2,000 miles from Kabul to Kiev, or whatever the Russians decide to rename that city after they've burned it to the ground. The Taliban, of course, are certain to comply with that request just as soon as they're finished using our weapons to slaughter the allies Biden left behind when he abandoned the country in chaos and blood. So that Putin would be tricked into invading Ukraine. So that we could ship the weapons from Kabul after the Taliban finishes using them to kill everyone. So it all makes sense. At least if you're watching CNN, which of course no one is. So maybe Biden's just a venal moron like everyone always thought. That's probably it. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-dee. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray.
right, we are back laughing our way through the fall of the Republic. We'll be talking about the Supreme Court, Ukraine, COVID, and we have a Russian expert coming on to talk about what is Putin Putin really up to. Uh, this is a great time to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. It's incredibly helpful to us. Also, if you subscribe to my personal Andrew Claven YouTube channel, uh, you can get exclusive content if you push that little bell. Uh, a little bell will go off in your head and just continue ringing until it drives you insane and none of this will matter anymore and you'll feel much happier. Uh, if you leave a comment on YouTube and it's, you know, racist and sexist and just hateful in the extreme, we'll read it on the show uh, because it'll fit right in with the rest of our content. Uh, today's comment is from Katie Pike, who says, you know what? Joe actually has overperformed my expectations for his first year. I honestly expected to have been committed to a concentration camp by now. Uh, actually, he just forgot to do it. So he's actually still underperforming. One of the things you want to do, I think, is support American companies. And the other thing you want to do is eat good meat. Good Ranchers is the exclusive meat company of the Daily Wire. They sell the most delicious beef, chicken, and seafood you can find and ship it right to your door. For a limited time, they're offering you their best deal on your next purchase, 30 bucks off any box with my code CLAVEN. You probably don't know, and I didn't know this either, but over 85% of the grass-fed beef in stores and online is imported from overseas. It also is often labeled product of the USA on its package, even when it's not truly from the USA. That means you could be buying low-quality foreign beef and not even know it. That's why you should get your T-bones, ribeyes, fillets, and mouth-watering burgers from Good Ranchers. All of their beef is 100% born, raised, and harvested in the USA. You can get steakhouse quality at an affordable price delivered right to your door. So visit GoodRanchers.com slash Clavin or use code Clavin at checkout to get 30 bucks off any one of their variety of boxes. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Clavin today. Save 30 bucks on your new favorite steak, a Good Rancher's steak. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, sure, sure, sure. But how do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no before I get started, I just have to show you, last night I received, what this is called an ARC, an advanced reading copy of my new book, The Truth and Beauty, which is out in April. Uh, if, if you are interested in where, this is kind of an intellectual memoir, sort of tells you where a lot of the ideas that I talk about come from. Uh, the subtitle is How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. If you would please go on and pre-order this on Amazon, it would really help out because it would let Zondervan, who's done a great job with the cover, it's a beautiful cover. Uh, it would let them know that people are interested in the book and they'll order more copies printed and that will uh, be good because then we won't have trouble getting you the copies. Uh, you know, I want to start by playing what has to be my favorite clip of the week, even though it's an old one. Uh, this is, you know, I talk about the elites and I talk about the elites being in this cloud of unknowing about the fact that they're buffoons. Here is a lady. Her name is... Um, uh, she, she was at a meeting called the Great Narrative Meeting, okay? And the Great Narrative is in Davos, you know, the World Economic Forum. And she's an Oxford economics professor. And she, <laughs> this is, it's almost unbelievable. She, she came on and, and, and was talking about, they're talking about how to get, make the narrative so that they, well, I'll use their words. Uh, they can guide the creation of a more resilient, inclusive, and sustainable vision of our collective future. In other words, how to talk us into doing what they want us to do. And this Oxford economics professor had this to say. At Davos a few years ago, 
you know, the Edelman survey showed us that the good news is the elite across the world trust each other more and more. So we can come together and design and do beautiful things together. The bad news is that in every single country they were polling, the majority of people trusted that elite less. So we can lead, but if people aren't following, we're not going to, to get to where we want to go. <laughs> we can lead, but people don't, aren't, nobody's following us. Why is it? It's weird. We trust each other. We trust each other so we can do beautiful things. But there's those crazy people, they don't trust us, so they're not following us where we want them to go. It's an amazing, amazing lack of insights. And one of the themes of the truth and beauty is learning to collaborate with creation. This is something we do as individuals. The world consists neither of immutable, unchangeable facts that are out there, nor does it only consist of your feelings within. It's a mysterious kind of collaboration between our minds and our feelings and the world as it is. The most obvious example of this is when you fall in love with someone. You fall in love with someone, that person seems beautiful and perfect, and that can be a valid experience, like with my wife, who actually is beautiful and perfect. But it can also be a delusion, like my wife loving me, which just causes her all kinds of problems. When you're deluded, in the way you experience the world, there are consequences for that delusion, right? You learn about your delusion through the consequences. If the people ex you love are ruining your lives, or if you build a machine that you think is going to take you to Mars and it ends up just falling down into to a pit, you learn to do things different and the, differently. And the whole difference between a joyful, and I would say a godly life, and a miserable life is reacting to consequences with honesty and integrity and adjusting your side of the collaboration with reality. You say, oh, I made a mistake. The person I fell in love with is not a good person. Uh, this machine is never going to go to Mars. It's just a, a sled. It's not going anywhere. Or in a more difficult situation, a more difficult example, you say, oh, you know, I got divorced and my ch when my children were little or I had an abortion and now I realize that was the wrong thing to do. I did an immoral thing and I have to accept that I did something wrong rather than doubling down on that Im immorality and pretending it was the right thing so that you shout your abortion or, you know, you become com increasingly committed to the evil thing that you did. What keeps people what is it that keeps people from doing, from accepting consequences and learning from them? We all know people who do this, right? We all know people who say, no, you know, I, I know that drinking is ruining my life, but I can't stop drinking, so give me another solution. There is no other solution. you got to lay off the booze, right? What stops them from doing that? And this is, I think, what people mean by the sin of pride, why people say the sin of pride is such a terrible sin and such a, a problem. And a lot of people think pride is being puffed up. It's like saying, I'm great, I'm a terrific person, or like that Monty Python song, I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. That's just a symptom of pride. That's the result of pride. What pride really is, is the inability to process shame. You can't admit you're wrong because your fragile, delusive sense of yourself as a good person won't survive and you'll have to accept that you're a sinful creature, you're a broken creature. You can't accept that your actions have bad consequences or that they're immoral. You can't stand the shame of having done something wrong and you can't uh, stand the shame of someone else having been right. This is what ha this happened to a lot of never-Trumpers. Have you noticed like there are a lot of never-Trumpers who just went insane and now every word out of their mouth is, is absurd. Their opinions are people who are highly intelligent saying absurd things. It's because they can't accept that, well, maybe they made a mistake. Maybe they should have voted for Trump. Maybe Trump had all kinds of flaws. Maybe he was a flawed human being. Maybe they didn't like him, but maybe it was better to have Trump appointing people to the Supreme Court than it would have been having Hillary Clinton uh, appoint 
three, three justices of the Supreme Court. Pride keeps us from acknowledging the consequences of our mistakes. You know, it keeps us, we keep saying, we double down on the insanity of what we're doing. And I, I personally believe that this is a reaction to original sin, the fact that we know we're not what we're supposed to be, we know we're broken inside, and we, we're desperate to think that we have virtue, we're desperate to think that we are a good person, uh, and, and we can't even accept God's forgiveness because that would mean we're not independent, we're dependent on God, and we can't even do that because that would be a kind of shame. It would be the shame of needing somebody, uh, and we can't process that shame. If you can't process shame, you're forced to keep going down the wrong road even as you ruin your life. Right-wingers and left-wingers do this equally. The only difference is, is that socialism and collectivism never work. Capitalism and freedom can work when they're connected to moral slash religious values. So we have, right-wingers have a narrow chance of getting things right. We have a small chance that we might get things right. And through a genuine godsend, a conservative coalition of Reagan and Pope John Paul II and Maggie Thatcher, we destroyed the Soviet Union. We destroyed the Soviet Union. For, so for the last 30 years, we've been living without consequences. We haven't had to deal with anything except for some savage tribes in the Middle East. Uh, we've dealt with a couple of medieval terrorists, but we really haven't had to deal with the kind of genuine global uh, pressure that we got from the Soviet Union because of that moment. That means that the left took over all of our uh, telecommunications, all of our communications territory, all of our culture, basically. And now the public at large is suddenly having this not-so-great awakening where we realize, oh, we forgot leftism, collectivism don't work, right? I mean, the economy had a good quarter because we're coming back from having shut down the economy completely. But but people are suffering still because of inflation. We have high crime in our major cities. We have Russia and China and Iran colluding in what they call the resistance. They actually call it this. Uh, it's an effort to destroy the American-led world order. So the world order won't be led by a free nation anymore. It'll be led by uh, these corrupt and autocratic leaders. Uh, we have bigots in ascendancy. Joe Biden saying that the Justice Breyer has announced his retirement from the Supreme Court at the end of this session. And Joe Biden says, oh, I'm going to appoint a black lady. And you think, well, why? You know, that's that's racist. That's sexist. That actually is the thing that you've accused everybody else of. But we're not going to, you know, so now we have racist and sexist at the very highest level of our government, where before that would have been un unacceptable. And people are suddenly starting to wake up. And you see this, even the left even and the media, which is the same thing, they can't hide it anymore. Here, let, you will see Margaret Brennan did one of those Zoom, uh, what do they call them, focus groups. And she asked people, um, she asked people, you know, how, how they like what's going on, right? Here's, here's the, the clip. During the course of the pandemic, we've been listening to Americans through Zoom to get their thoughts on COVID, the economy, and how the government is handling it all. On Friday, we checked back in with six of them. Who feels like we are in a better place now than we were a year ago? Show of hands. No one believes we're in a better spot now. Well... That's not quite true. Somebody believes we're in a better spot now, or somebody at least is telling us that we're in a better spot now. Here he is. As a result of the progress we've made, record economic growth, record job growth, faster economic recovery than any other nation on earth, we are better positioned globally than we have been in a long, long time. I love it. I love it. So that's what I'm talking about, the sin of pride. The left, which means all our institutions, Academy, Hollywood, news media corporations, in their pride, their inability to process shame, they're just going to double down 
on insanity. They're going to keep doing what they've been doing, no matter how badly it goes. And if you don't, if you don't agree with them, if you don't think things are getting better, that's your fault. The elites all love each other. They all trust each other. Everything is great. If only, what, how come when they look behind them, when they lead and they look behind them, no one is there? You know, what they do is they basically tell you the consequences aren't there. The numbers on the GDP are great. Why aren't you happy just because you can't afford to fill up your car? What's wrong with you? What, it's your fault. As somebody said, uh, Paul Begala said, the Democrats aren't suffering from bad leadership. They're suffering from bad followers. It's your fault in the consequences. Abortion wouldn't be bad if you just stopped feeling guilty about it. People wouldn't kill police officers if they didn't have guns, right? If we, it's not, It has nothing to do with us basically condemning all police officers and calling for defunding the police and calling them racist. That's not why they're shooting police in Houston and New York. Two, two young men who were police officers ambushed and killed in New York City. Uh, three, I think, were shot in Houston. I think, uh, God willing, they're still alive. You know, black communities wouldn't have so much crime if we just stopped arresting people, right? The problem is not that the, crime, the high crime, it's that we just keep arresting people. Blame the consequences rather than the actions. That's, that is the effect of pride as the country faces its not-so-great awakening. The left is just doubling down on insanity. You know, the Daily Wire has grown so fast that we sometimes forget that we started with almost nothing, just me and Ben doing little podcasts on a card table in Jeremy's uh, pool house. When you start a business, a small business, you want it to become big, you need to market that thing like crazy. Constant Contact is a digital marketing platform that helps small businesses and nonprofits of all sizes build, grow, and succeed. They've been trusted by millions of businesses to help improve their marketing. With a 97% deliverability rate, you can rest assured that your customers and potential customers are getting the right message at the right time. With a simple interface, Constant Contact's easy-to-use platform makes contact management easier than ever. Their list Growth tools help you find a bigger audience fast. Lead generation landing pages, text to join, and social media ads are proven to grow your list and drive engagement with your brand. With thousands of integrations, you can sync Constant Contact's tools with the tools you're already using. Constant Contact is the way to go if you want to build your business. To start your free digital marketing trial today, visit ConstantContact.com. That's ConstantContact.com. There was an excellent column about this phenomenon that I'm talking about, this doubling down on insanity, living outside of consequences by uh, the Wall Street Journal editor-at-large, Gerard Baker. Now, I shouldn't be nice to Gerard Baker because he promised he was going to come on the show and he ghosted me, but I'm just going to be the bigger man here and I'll you know, have some friends drop by his house and let the air out of his tires and then move on because he did write a really great column. It was, it was called Politics Are Already Leading Us Into the Metaverse. Let me just read you a little bit of this. If the tech mavens are right, we will all soon live in the metaverse. But since the dictionary defines this mystical place as, quote, a highly immersive virtual world where people gather to socialize, play, and work, you might ask whether we don't already live there. For years, political and cultural leaders in the real world have been creating a virtual make-believe one, an artificially constructed reality, a fable and allegory in which performative posturing as the, is the modus operandi. The idea is that by operating in this world, they signal their own virtue, relevance, and even meaning. The public policy class seem to have decided that an artificial reality is preferable 
to the actual one. Take the pandemic. The coronavirus seems essentially to have defied almost all policy measures to mitigate it. So instead, our leaders have chosen ersatz rules that signal whether you're part of their reality. Mask wearing, social distancing, vaccine mandates. There's little evidence to support claims for the efficacy of any of these measures, but they will serve nicely as emblems of belonging in your own universe. It has become absolutely clear. And listen, I have taken, I have never come on and said, this disease is a hoax. People are suffering. People are dying. People have died in their thousands and thousands, in their millions, really, across the world. I have not told you that the vaccines are a hoax. None of that. I'm triple vaccinated. You know, I did everything I could to stay healthy as an older guy, not wanting to die. It has nothing to do with this. 15% of the suffering this country has gone through is because of this disease. 85% is because of people like that lady in Davos who can't wake up to the fact that they're just wrong. They do not know. They're well-informed, and they're probably very bright, but they're wrong. It's easy. It's easy. It's easy not to be wise, right? They cannot, and that's where the suffering comes from. When you see a headline that says, oh, children are suffering because of the pandemic, businesses are closing because of the pandemic, none of that's true. None of it's happening because of the pandemic. All of it is happening because of bad government reactions. The important point, the important point to remember as we're talking about this, is that the things the government has done, with the possible exception of, of helping uh, create the vaccine, they have not worked, Right. There's evidence that the vaccinations have la uh, low, lessened symptoms for a time. They don't, they're a little bit of a disappointment because they seem to wear off. They don't work as well. They don't stop transmission. But the masks, for instance, here is Rand Paul speaking absolute truth about the mask, wearing masks. The science isn't very good behind this. You know, we've looked at this in Florida. About half the school districts had a mask mandate. The other half didn't. The incidence of the disease was about the same. In Sweden, they haven't worn masks at all for two years in their school. Incidence isn't any different than any other schools in the in the world. So really, there's no strong evidence that masks work. When you look at mask mandates, like New York's got this crazy mask mandate. When you look at the institution of the mandate, when it was instituted, and you look at the incidence of the disease, if anything, the disease keeps going up when you have mask mandates. The mask really have had no influence on the pandemic. So, so I, I, I said this to, to my own doctor, you know, he said, studies show, studies show that if two people in a room wear a mask, the incidence of, of transmission goes down. I said, yeah, but that's not the real world. In the real world, people take off their masks, they eat, they talk, they do all these things. It's not working. The numbers, the numbers are just the same no matter where you go. The thing that make the only thing that makes a difference is whether or not people are packed together like in New York or spread out in South Dakota, right? The masks, meanwhile, are causing serious problems. Children have eating disorders, psychological problems. All of us should be able to see one another's faces. It's important. It's important in the West that we look on one another's faces. And so remember now, remember, the mask, the numbers don't show that the masks do anything. So what's the right thing to do? Take the masks off. Leave people alone. You want to wear a mask, wear a mask. Don't blame anybody else if they don't want to wear a mask. Let me show you this incredible uh, video of people in a, it's in an elevator, I believe, uh, attacking a man. They're all wearing masks. They're all old ladies. They're all wearing masks. And a guy gets on who is not wearing a mask and they assault him. Get out. Get out. Get out. Get out. Yo, stop, stop recording me. I don't know you. Yo, you need to stop. Get 
I'm, I'm not getting out. I was here. Yes, you are. Now, I just want you to hear what they said. These are white ladies. They're all white ladies. They're hitting a black man, and they're screaming as they hit him. As they begin to hit him, they start to scream, Black Lives Matter. Why? Because their own, with their own eyes, they can see that they are behaving animalistically. They can see with their own eyes that they're doing something awful, and they're shouting reality down. They're telling reality that it is not what they see. That is the sin of pride in action, and that is a perfect metaphor for the left in this moment. Reporters standing in front of burning cities, burning Kenosha, Wisconsin, saying, oh, it's a mostly peaceful demonstration. As the city burns to the ground in back of them, they're hitting a black guy, they're shouting Black Lives Matter. And it doesn't just affect crazy women and dishonest uh, reporters. This Pride does this to everybody. You know, the, last night, yeah, it was last night on Brett Baer's special report, uh, Harold Ford, very smart, very elegant, really decent Democrat. I disagree with every word that comes out of his mouth, but he always speaks respectfully. He always tries to make his argument. He always marshals the facts as well as he can. I disagree with him, but he's not like a, a shouting, horrible guy. And he's obviously, a, you know, he was a former congressman. He works in the financial business. He's obviously a very intelligent guy. So Brett Baer says to him, the Supreme Court is literally going to be deciding whether or not uh, racial quotas are legal in universities. A case is coming before them. And here is Joe Biden saying that he is going to replace Justice Breyer with a black woman, a racial quota, right? Now, here is this incredibly smart guy, uh, Harold Ford Jr. And listen, listen carefully to his response. The president today pledged that qualifications, legal competence, judicial temperament would be foremost on his mind. And that he indeed decided to end the inglorious uh, tradition of not having an African-American woman on the court. It's important to note that the 233-year tradition of our Supreme Court, we've had 114 Supreme Court justices. Only seven of them have not been white men. Now, when those 107 were appointed, no one suggested or implied that there was some racism there. But this president decided that he's going to uh, ensure that we have this diversity on the court. But qualifications, temperament, and legal competence will have to be first. Okay, so now listen to this argument. This is an argument of a highly intelligent man, right? He says, we appointed all these white men, uh, and no one said that was racist. So why can't we fix it by having black women? But of course, that is exactly the argument, right? That's exactly what everyone says. Nobody said it at the time because the society itself was a racist society like every other society at the time. But people say it now, right? What they say is that was racist, that was sexist, we only appointed white men. So adopting those values to fix it is using two wrongs to make a right and extending injustice into a new generation and ensuring bitterness and division continues, right? You just keep doing the wrong thing, you're going to keep getting the same result. You can say, you can say, screw you, white people, you, you know, People with white skin were unjust in the past, so we're going to take it out on totally different people with white skin now. Obviously, that's unjust, but you can say that if you say it, if you make that argument. But you can't claim it wasn't racist in the first place and therefore needs to be fixed through racism because it was racist in the first place and racism is wrong. This is a, this is a smart guy, a smart, sensitive, you know, a guy who actually respects other people who disagree with him, making an insane argument because he can't just say no. It's wrong. Racism is wrong. We can't fix the past. We move on from here. That's the best we can do. That is the best human beings. Can. You know, if we had the power to fix the past, believe me, I would reach out and fix it. I wish I could. Nobody can do that. The past is past. The future is all we got. So all you got to do is stop, is stop being racist now and let things smooth out. You know, it, 
The other result of this is you start to idolize fools. You start to idolize fools. Why? Because the more the fool uh, fools you, the more he uh, pulls a scam on you, the more you have to deny that that's what's happening, right? It's like shouting your abortion. It's like shouting the, that some expert has really done the, the greatest thing. You know, uh, the other thing that happened on Special Report, this was a couple of days ago, is they, you know, you always get tomorrow's news today on this show, and I did a timeline of how uh, Fauci and Francis Collins, how they covered up the fact that this flu probably was manufactured in a lab in Wuhan, possibly with our funding. And they covered up. We have the emails. We can show the emails. And Brett Baird, you know, chasing after me a little bit, but they have more reporting power and they did an excellent, excellent job. They basically showed that this was true, that this was a cover-up, that they only wanted one narrative, they wanted to control the narrative, and so they kept information from people, they threw people off Twitter, they threw people off, you know, it was basically you were banned. If anybody said this came out of a lab of Wuhan, in Wuhan, which it almost certainly did, now it does seem to have done. So instead, here's this guy who said, don't wear masks, wear masks. It's going to be over in a week. It's going to be over in two years. It'll never be over. Every time he opens his mouth, he says something differently. You would think that people would start to say, hey, hey, we trusted you. You screwed us. Get out of town. Instead, this is what we get from the press. The single most respected voice in the pandemic it's Dr. Anthony Fauci. The man who's become known as America's doctor. The nation's top infectious disease expert, Anthony Fauci. You are uh, seen to many as a, a superhero. Dr. Anthony Fauci, American hero and New York Yankee fan. You've done so much for this country in terms of this crisis, so I really appreciate your insight. Who better to give us answers that we can trust than Dr. Anthony Fauci? The perfect person to answer our questions today. Joining us now, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Anthony Fauci. Appreciate your candor. Dr. Fauci, appreciate the candor. We appreciate your service to this country. We appreciate your service. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. Greatly appreciate your service to America. Thank you for your 37 years of service, I believe, to seven presidents. And thank you for your work over the past year. The great news is you're sticking around in the Biden administration. We are so grateful to you, Dr. Fauci. <laughs> Why? Why? Because you can't say, oh, this guy fooled us. This guy conned us. This guy didn't get it right. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Because then you're the fool. It's the sin of pride. One time, one time, a reporter approached Fauci and actually took him to task for what he had done. This is the only time. I think, I think it was uh, Ducey from Fox. I'm not sure who it was. But here's the only time it was caught on video. If you are really great and powerful, you keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh. The great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz. Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. <laughs> Dorothy Douche, she does a really good job reporting. That's the moment. That's the moment everybody's afraid of. And it's not just the right. It's all of us. We all are like this. We're all afraid of that moment when somebody pulls back the curtain and says, oh, you're just a broken, sinful guy. You have no virtue. You cannot get by on your own. You are dependent on God. All of that stuff. We do not want that curtain pulled back because that big head, that giant head saying, I am the great and powerful Wizard of Oz is all of us. It is all of us. The left simply are the people who have had all the power, especially the cultural power, 
for the last 30 to 60 years. They have slowly taken over. They've purposely taken over our cultural institutions. They have purposely made it so that you, the, their virtue, their, not, not just their political opinions, their virtue depend on believing what they believe. You wear a mask because you have virtue. Uh, you believe in affirmative action because you have virtue. You know, they, they'll say, you say, well, I don't believe in affirmative action. You say you're racist. Don't you believe that there's racism? Don't you believe there's systemic racism? You know, my feeling is if you said to me that house is on fire, I'm going to spray gasoline on it. I would say, well, my friend, you have correctly identified the situation, but you've come up with the wrong solution, right? And this is the thing that they keep doing. They have come up with the wrong solution because it's always about the leftism. It's not really about helping black people. It's not really about helping women. It's not really about helping gays. It's always about collecting um, power in the central place where the elites gather so that the elites can do beautiful things together and all of us who don't want to follow because we can see that nothing they do works, we'll have to follow because they have all the power. And that's what it's about. And they're afraid. They're, I think, personally afraid. They're personally afraid of that moment when the curtain is pulled back and we say, you know, I know you're a professor at Oxford. I know, you're, you, know you have a, a degree from Yale or Harvard or wherever you went, but you're wrong. You are wrong. And the things that you believe do not work and do not help. Instead, again, they double down on insanity. That's the sin of pride. So if you listen to my show a lot, and you should, you already know that I love nothing better than to lie awake on my Helix mattress. I never sleep, but at least Helix mattress is incredibly comfortable. And now Helix has left the bedroom and started making sofas so I can not sleep on one of them. They just launched a new company called Allform, and they are already making the best sofas you've ever seen. What makes an all-form sofa really cool? For starters, it's the easiest way you can customize a sofa using premium materials and in a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. You can pick your fabric, the sofa color, the color of the legs, sofa size, and shape to make sure it's perfect for you and your home. All-form sofas are also delivered directly to your home with fast, free shipping. In the past, if you wanted to order a sofa, it could take weeks or even months to arrive, and you would need someone to come and assemble it in your home all form takes just three to seven days to get to you, and you can assemble it yourself in a few minutes. And all form is offering 20% off of all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash Claven. That is allform.com slash Claven. All form is spelled all form. That's easy, but Claven, <laughs> that's a tough one. It's K L A V A N. No E's in Claven. I just make it look this easy. The same thing is true with this game of chicken they're playing in Kiev. <laughs> chicken Kiev. Get it? No, never mind. Well, for some reason, we're not supposed to call it Kiev anymore. It's Kiev or Kiev, Kiev. But I'm going to continue to call it Kiev because I don't really know how to pronounce the other one. And that's, it's always been Kiev. So why should it change? We are now in this situation where they literally are playing chicken in Kiev, right? Uh, Biden is moving troops and he's th making threats. But really, Putin has got especially Europe, by, you know, he's got him by the hairs because he is supplying a huge amount of the gas and oil that they need, the oil that they need. Uh, like It's like 40%, I think. Russia supplies about 40% of Europe's gas imports, and he's holding them back. He's basically saying supplies are going to be uh, short this winter as winter comes on and you want to heat your houses if you bug me in the Ukraine, right? So where did he get this power? And people are saying, well, you know, some people are saying, well, you know, Putin, I, 
Biden should uh, send troops and some people are saying Biden should not care. But really, the question is, how did Putin, who has no money, right, his country is, is basically broke, how did he get this power over the United States of America? And it is about, it's about the green movement. It is about climate change hysteria because of the green movement, because of climate change obsession. Putin is now in a position to jerk us around. And remember, Putin is not just Putin anymore. Putin is China and Putin is Iran. These are three countries that have banded together in what's called the resistance. My pal Mike Duran has a great piece about this in the Wall Street Journal today. Um, they have banded together in what they call the resistance. Their open intention is to destroy the American-led world order. Now, listen, it's not, I don't want the world order led by America because we just happen to, because I happen to live here. Uh, because I love the stars and stripes, because I love football and, you know, uh, apple pie. That's not why. I want the world to be led by a free nation, an essentially free nation. We're still clinging to our freedom. We're still in a place where people obey the rule of law. We're still in a place where, uh, you know, I can say the things I'm saying. I can make fun of Joe Biden and the police don't kick in the door. You know, let's let's not kid ourselves. We're not in a, in a completely authoritarian country yet. The left is incredibly authoritarian-minded, but they still have been restricted by our traditions and by our laws. And so we're still in a free country. And those values are the values I want to spread through the world. Why? Because freedom is better than slavery. It is morally better than slavery. It is better for people to be free than enslaved. Even if it makes them unhappy, even if they have to make choices, even if they have to take responsibilities they don't want to take, it is morally better that people be free than that people that kings rule over them. And that is why I want America to be the leader of the free world as opposed to Russia, Iran, and China, where they have slaughtered millions of their own people, where they right this moment China is committing a, a, an act of genocide against the Uyghurs, Russia kills people who, you know, Putin just kills people who criticize him. I do not want them to win. I want us to win. And that's why this climate change obsession is really, really damaging and has put us in the place that we are. You know, like I said, Russia typically supplies about 40% of Europe's gas imports and it's, it's stopping delivery. So what P Biden is doing, he's running around to the Middle East and other places, he's begging them to sell the, the gas and oil to Europe so they won't freeze to death. But instead, but leading up to this time, what has he done? Again, reading from the journal, start with government bans on hydraulic shale fracturing. Europe's gas reserves are smaller than Russia's, though it has a, about as much technically recoverable shale gas as the U.S., according to the Energy Information Administration. Yet European governments won't let this strategic asset be developed. Now, why did we develop shale uh, fracking so we could unleash this incredible energy from the earth? Why did we do it when Europe couldn't? Because here because of our traditions, because of the philosophies of the 18th century, when you own a piece of land, you own what's underneath the land. In Europe, that's not true. When I rented an apartment, when I bought an apartment in London, when I was living in London, I bought an apartment. I bought only the apartment. The ground under the apartment belonged to someone else, some duke somewhere or something like that. I bought it, it, there were only like 10 years left on the lease, so the apartment was cheap enough for me to afford to buy it in a very, very fancy neighborhood. Then I bet, I made a bet that the lease would be renewed, and it was, and so I did well on that apartment. But still, I, was, I had to bet that because I didn't own what was underneath 
the ground there. And the people who own the building didn't own what was underneath the ground. So if you own a piece of land in Europe, you the government can tell you not to take out the stuff that's underneath it. That is not true here. Here you own what's underneath the earth. And so you could, we had developed fracking, and it made us not only energy independent, it made us an exporter of energy and Biden has done everything he can to shut that down. He's basically said you can't explore on federal lands. He's just made it all much more difficult. I mean, the left's reaction to that, by the way, is that they should take away, they should take away our property rights. Germany has made itself even more dependent on Russian gas, again, reading from the journal, by shutting down nuclear plants which provide low-cost baseload power. Now, this is another, this is insane. This is insane. Why did they shut down? Their nuclear power, which is the, one of the cleanest, most efficient forms of energy production there is. They did it because there was that disaster at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant in Japan. There was an earthquake. There was a tsunami that broke their uh, reactor. Guess how many people died? One person died in that thing. And yet the protests, the irrational protests went on you got to shut down nuclear power, and Germany just gave in and started to shut down their power plant. So now they're even more dependent on Russia. So Russia has even more. When when um, Biden asked Germany to help out with uh, discouraging Putin from going into Ukraine, they sent helmets. <laughs> I think it was the I can't remember the president of Ukraine as well. An official in Ukraine said, "This is a joke. What are they going to send me next? Pillows? You know? I mean, this is this is what's happening. It's, it's Pure business. It's pure corruption because the consequences of green uh, politics, green politics. And yet, no one, never will they say, oh, green politics was a mistake, you know? you know? The funny thing is, remember that the more developed the country gets, the cleaner it gets, right? The London fog, which bedeviled London in the 19th century, is gone because they could get beyond using coal. That's why the London fog disappeared. The uh, smog that used to bedevil L.A. is gone because they invented the cattle, not because they got rid of cars, but because they invented the catalytic converter. And they, the more developed you get, the more you can cut down on the pollution that comes from energy. Listen, if your car is not working and your love life stinks, you can solve both by going to rockauto.com. Why? Because the minute you say rockauto.com, your phone will start ringing with women saying, who said that? What was that sound? I love that sound. Also, it will let them know that you know how to get parts for your car, right? If your car is sitting there in the garage, in the garage, in the driveway, not running, it does no good to sit there pretending you're driving to an auto parts store where really they don't know any more about auto parts than you do. If you just go on rockauto.com, you will find their easy to use catalog. The prices are better than anywhere else. And you get to say rockauto.com. The rockauto.com catalog is unique. It's really, really easy to navigate. You know, you have to fight off the women while you're doing it because when you say rockauto.com, they know you know what to do in a situation where your car is not running or needs a part. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need right in your computer. RockAuto.com. Go to RockAuto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Clavin in there. How did you hear about us, Box? So they know we sent you. It really, women love it when you know how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. So here we are. Here we are. The the problem is in, intense because 
Biden is not just uh, Biden. I keep saying Biden and Putin keep convincing, uh, confusing those two because they sound so much like Putin is not just trying to take over Ukraine. He's also trying to destroy with China and Iran, trying to destroy NATO and trying to separate NATO from us. They are trying to destroy the American led world order. That's what he's trying to do. And remember, Putin is a monster. There's some guys on the right. I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Putin is a bad guy. This is a guy who blew up. He had a he faked a terrorist attack in Moscow, blew up 300 people to help him get elected, right? And he started the war against the Chechen in Chechnya. This is a, a, a gangster, and everybody who has investigated that incident has disappeared or died. And one of them was in England. He was poisoned. He wrote a book about it, and he was poisoned with polonium, right? He was actually a terrible way to die. This is the kind of thing that Putin does. And it's kind of typical of Russia that, that, that that's the way their czars behave. But still, this is not a guy we should be saying, oh, what's the difference between Putin and Ukraine? There is a difference between Putin and Ukraine. Ukraine, like all post-Soviet countries, Ukraine is corrupt. You know, the Soviet Union pooled all that wealth in the government. And so when the Soviet Union fell, the gangsters came in and they took the wealth out and it never helped the people. That's true in every single post-Soviet country, all of them. Whether you like them or not, that's true. They're all, they all are rife with corruption. Ukraine is rife with corruption. That's why Hunter Biden spent so much time there. However, however, Ukraine has yearnings toward democracy. It has yearnings toward NATO. And the big demand that Putin is making is that NATO declare that it will not accept Ukraine into NATO. And of course, NATO cannot do that, can't do it. So the people who are saying that we should just ignore the whole thing, that we shouldn't, why are we being so, you know, uh, why, why do we hate Putin so much? No, Putin is a hateful guy. He's a horrible guy. He's part of this Russian-China-Iran uh, axis. We need to defend ourselves and the world against him. Does that mean we go to war? Well, obviously, that's, that's the kind of decision that each, each person has to make, each leader has to make. And luckily, we have Joe Biden, who doesn't even know where he is, who's going to be making it. So there are consequences for us, too. Remember, consequences for our election. The problem is you never know. You never know in each situation whether you're going to, it's going to be World War I, where they started a massive, massive war for no, no real reason wiped off the greatest civilization that had ever existed on earth off the face of the earth, destroyed a generation of men for no reason? Or are you dealing with Hitler in Czechoslovakia, where if you don't stand up to him, he won't back down? You know, if you stood up to him, you could have prevented war. You just never know. You have to be able to judge it. But these guys are so beyond, so beyond reason, so beyond thought that you can't trust them to make the right decisions now that the crisis has been created by listening to these green idiots, by listening to people like AOC. We have gotten into this situation to begin with. How are they going to find their way out? I mean, Biden shut down our pipeline, our Keystone pipeline, but pulled the sanctions on Putin's Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which not only is going to feed, make Germany more dependent, not only make Europe more dependent on Russian fuel, it is also going to buy, it also bypasses the Ukraine. So Ukraine doesn't get the, the money they would have gotten, the license fees they would have gotten for letting the pipeline go through. He's done everything wrong. So what's the problem? So you ask uh, Jonathan Feiner, the deputy uh, national secretary director, you ask him, what's the, pro the problem why should we even care about Ukraine? Here's his response. Why should Americans care about what's happening in Ukraine? Uh, because it, it goes to a very fundamental principle of, of all nations, which is that our borders uh, should be inviolate, that our sovereignty uh, should be respected. 
<laughs> I bet he got a good talking to when he, I'm guessing Jen Psaki gave him a good scolding when he got back. Borders, borders should be respected. Millions, millions of illegal immigrants, hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants have poured across, something like half a million illegal immigrants have poured across our borders. Not only is nobody stopping them, but we now know, we now have footage showing the fact that they are in under cover of night without telling anybody they are flying these people into the heart of America. They're just letting, you know, just letting them loose. And some of them are using, some of them are, are convicted criminals. They're flying them off, dropping them off. We now have this, it's, it's incredible footage. I'll show you just a little bit of it. The, a cop basically asks the pilots, the people who are uh, doing these flights for the Department of Homeland Security, asks them for identification. They don't want to identify themselves because it's all supposed to be on the down low. we're not supposed to show IDs or anything like that. Like I said, everything's supposed to be hush-hush. But you know what? If I show you my ID and I'm up front with you, the next time you see me, hey, I know who he is. Yeah, it's easy. See what I'm saying? Crime is a consequence of policy. War is a consequence of policy. A failure of policy. Inflation is a consequence of policy. Disease, you know, the spread of disease and the, the basic... Uh, harm we've done to our psychology and our economy by overreacting to the to the pandemic. These are consequences of policy. Consequences are what teach you that your experience of the world is diluted, is off. When you have a consequence in your personal life, when you have a consequence as a leader that you do not like, you should change the way you are reacting to the world. And what stops you? It's the sin of pride, the inability to process shame. The left is now suffering from this as if it were the true pandemic, the sin of pride. I know you've heard me talk about Ring Video Doorbell. It's absolutely terrific. Anyone comes to your house, no matter where you are, whether you're home or somewhere else, you can talk to them, see them on your phone, in the app, and make sure your home is secure and make sure things are taken care of. You may not know that Ring also makes an alarm. Ring Alarm is an award-winning home security system with available professional monitoring. You can easily install it yourself. You can get all the sensors from motion doors and windows that will work on any house or apartment. You can get notified right on your phone whenever anything is detected. I've partnered with Ring, so like me with Ring Alarm, you and your loved ones can rest easy knowing that Ring is helping to protect your home. Ring's professional monitoring is an amazing deal. You get award-winning professional monitoring for less money than most professional alarm companies. You may not have known it, but it's true. Ring has an award-winning alarm. Go to ring.com forward slash Clavin to get a great deal on a Ring Alarm home security kit today. That's ring.com forward slash Clavin. Anyone comes to your door, just say to him, how do you spell Clavin? If he knows, call the police. So because Vladimir Putin is not just a bad guy, he's a very, very intelligent, clever bad guy. One of the things I have noticed is that every time I look at an article about what he's up to, 
it says something different. So I wanted to talk to Rebecca Koffler today. She's a Russian-born former DIA intelligence officer, that's uh, defense intelligence, and author of Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America, uh, which is basically kind of unfolding in front of our eyes. She's base- she's now a strategic intelligence analyst with the Lindsay Group. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on. Of course. It's my honor and pleasure, Andrew, to uh, be with you and your audience here. Oh, thank you. It's, uh, you know, uh, let's just start with you for a minute. You're you're actually from the Soviet Union, right? You were born in the Soviet Union. I was born and raised in the former Soviet Union. Went to school there. Immigrated uh, back in uh, 1989. Um, served in the intelligence community, and uh, and yeah, I've written a book. And uh, unfortunately, right now the events are unfolding exactly according to Putin's playbook, about which I was trying to warn back in the intelligence community and by writing this book. Yeah, it's, it is It is kind of amazing. Before before we get to Putin, though, is there something that you could tell America, if you had, if there was one thing you could get Americans to understand about the Russian people, what would it, what is it that we don't get about them? Well, the one thing is Russians don't think like Americans, <laughs> you know, and in fact, no one thinks like Americans, you know, the, even Europeans don't think like Americans, you know, Americans are unique people, you know, shaped and formed by their history. And, uh, and so are the Russians, the Russians also believe that they are exceptional. And so I described it, you know, in my book, and um, obviously, America is all about freedom, justice, and opportunity. But the Russians, there's a reason why they support Putin, and we can go into it. It's not that they are bad people. Uh, of course, there are bad people in Russia, in Russia, and the government is very corrupt. But uh, overall, there are two, as the Russians like to say, there are two big differences, you know, between Russians and Americans. And and those are, <laughs> but what, 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 why do they support Putin though? I mean, the guy seems like a, an act, absolute gangster to me. Why do they like him? Right, right. So you nailed it. Yes, he's a gangster. But um, so uh, basically during the collapse and in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia went through some very, very tough times, and especially the Russian people did, because the communists became capitalists, right? Uh, Because they were in a position to grab all the, um, you know, uh, all the uh, factories and plants, all the businesses, because remember, under the Soviet uh, rule, there was no private property, everything belonged to the government, right? Well, the same people became capitalists, the Russian people got the short end of the stick. And while everybody in the West was celebrating the uh, so-called peace dividend and was expecting that all of a sudden Russia was going to become a democracy, nothing like that really happened. So the Russians associate democracy with very bad, difficult times, tumultuous times. They even call it the damn 90s mm-hmm. and Putin turned up and he completely changed everything and he put law and order, if you will, and he raised Russia's statue on world stage and um, the great power status 
is part of Russian identity. And that's why they love him. Not everybody. And yes, his approval rating fluctuates, but it's still very high. Like it usually is between 60 and 80. And even during the downtime, 60 is still very well, you know, above what our U.S. presidents get. So there are people on the right in this country who kind of like Putin, too, because he says talks about law and order. He talks about religion. What is Putin up to? I mean, you wrote a book called Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. Rebecca Koffler, what is his playbook? What's he up to? Right. Uh, well, first, Andrew, if I may, I want to address very briefly the religious aspect of it. Yeah, please. Um Putin tries to present himself as this religious, you know, man, right? And he resurrected the spirituality in Russia, you know, um, and he's raising the statue of Russian Orthodox uh, Church, trying to really pretend that they, uh, that the Russians are very similar to American religious people and nothing can be further from the truth, right? There's big differences and we can go into that later. And so uh, when President, former President Bush looked into Putin's eyes yeah. and saw a soul, he was mistaken. President Bush was sort of um, a victim, if you will, of uh, Putin's manipulations because the Russians profile US leaders uh, routinely, right, with whom they deal and including President Biden, which is why you see, you know, Putin uh, being able to uh, outmaneuver President Biden. So back then he knew that President uh, Bush is very religious and he was trying to establish some, you know, common interest with him. So that's one thing. And then with regard to Putin's playbook, uh, which I wrote, uh, the Russians developed a very unique and very sophisticated strategy to prevent the United States from letting Putin achieve his strategic ambitions, which is rebuild the imperial Russia. And again, we could get into that later. And if we stand in their way, which Putin understands we do, because our um, national interests are on the collision course, he's even prepared to defeat the United States, including militarily. And there are a lot of non-kinetic aspects in his playbook, and one of them is cyber, which is why you see the DHS recently announcing that the Russian uh, cyber attack is in the works and somehow we should be bracing for it. You know, somehow we're supposed now to defend ourselves, you know, from the Russian cyber attack, even though we have a very strong national security apparatus. But unfortunately, there was sleeping at the wheel while Putin was developing his strategy. And we were not paying attention and we were not developing counter strategy. When you say he wants to rebuild Imperial Russia, you're talking about Russia even before the Soviet Union, right? So, well, I kind of, um, I'm sorry, Andrew, I used this word uh, colloquially. Okay. Uh, let me just be uh, very nuanced uh, about this. So what Putin wants is to reconstitute a, um, a supranational state. 
not unlike the former Soviet Union, right? He wants to integrate the post-Soviet states into one entity that would be um, sort of similar to a combination of three things, um, NATO, European Union, and Soviet Union, right? He, uh, the nuance here is that there's no plan, right, at least right now, to incorporate Baltics into that supranational state because Putin understands the Baltics, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia are part of NATO. And the, if, if, if one thing that Putin is afraid of is the might of US and NATO military capability, kinetic capability. So he doesn't want to escalate the conflict where he would have to take us on head on, right? But everything else, post-Soviet states, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Moldova, all of those, he wants to integrate them. And the process is already underway. He has established the Eurasian uh, Union he calls it the Eurasian European Union, but colloquially they even re, uh, referring to it right now as the Union. Mm. And Belarus and Russia are right now like this, so, you know. And and CSTO is part of that, the um, which is equivalent in Putin's view uh, to NATO, which is what he used in Kazakhstan. So, in your estimation, is he going to actually send troops into Ukraine? Is that where you think this is headed? So okay, so so. That's a very, um, it's a tough one, right? I, uh, several weeks ago, I made a call and I put out an op-head, uh, which was published on Fox News website. Uh, it's titled something like, um, Putin is gonna strike Ukraine uh, soon and he's just toying with Biden, right? Um, at that point, I assessed that that was what Putin was gonna do. I still do not rule out the possibility that Putin will attack Ukraine, right? Including with a kinetic strike, including take over possibly Eastern Ukraine, mm. because that has been his plan all along for possibly ever since he became Russian president, right? He talked about it. He has written about it that Ukraine and, and Russia are one people. So um, an alternative to an actual invasion would be an installment of Putin's puppet, a pro-Russian uh, government leader, and uh, removing Zelensky through a coup, not unlike you know, what happened back in 2014, um, the regime change that uh, the Russians still can't get over um, and they attribute that occurrence to the United States. And they are super paranoid, putting the super paranoid of uh, the United States possibly preparing a coup against Putin. Mm -hmm. And so that's how he, that's his playbook. How, what, what figure? How does cyber figure into this? What would a Russian cyber attack on America look like? That's an excellent uh, question. Um, and it's a very, very scary one, um, Andrew. Cyber is actually features very prominently 
in um, in Russian doctrine and strategy. In fact, I have a whole chapter in my book called um, Cyber Weapons um, uh, Targeting US, American ne uh, US Networks and American Minds, right? Um, cyber, the way that the Russians view cyber is very different from our conception of cyber, the US of what we call blue, right? They view, um, they call it cyber weapons and they view a technical aspect of it as a very prominent one, but even more prominent one, the information aspect of it. What, what do they mean by that? What they did back in 2016, the intervention in US election, not for the reasons that the media present and not to elect Trump, you know, anything like that, you know, um, but it was basically to create chaos and disorder and possibly foment and unre unrest, right? Uh, so they succeeded. That, that succeeded utterly, That right? is exactly right. And alarmingly, Andrew, our own intelligence community, the corrupt echelons of the IC, which I honorably served, but there were like corrupt people like John Brennan, uh, James Clapper, James Comey, the FBI director. So they put out that fraudulent ICA, right? The Intelligence Community Assessment, our flagship product, which was completely, you know, mischaracterized Putin's intention. Okay. So getting back to cyber, which is the question that you asked. So the cyber attacks that uh, Russia is prepared to wage could be of two kind. There could be a worst case scenario, right? And that would only be attempted by Putin if Putin assesses that the US is actually intervening militarily in war on Ukraine's behalf he has the capability to plunge our country into darkness by attacking our power grid, wow. right? Wow. And if I may, I'm gonna read to you an actual quote that uh, comes from one of Putin's key uh, cyber warfare strategists. The reason I wanna uh, read to you um, Andrew, is because A, it's very demonstrative, and B, is because the U.S. government was trying to sabotage the publication of my book, uh, because I, well, they didn't it, want... Rebecca, please read just a short bit of it, because I have an important question, and I'm running out of time, but I just, just oh, read a got short... It. Okay. okay, sure. By inserting disinformation in publications, advocating extremist ideas, inciting racist and xenophobic flash mobs, conducting interstate computer attacks on the critical infrastructure targets that are vital for the functioning of a society, it is possible to heat up the situation in any country, all the way up to the point of social unrest. Wow, wow. And that is the reason the Russians actually view cyber on par with nuclear weapons because of how they can uh, be employed in destroying the country. That that's terrifying. I have to go back it for is. a minute. I have to go back for a minute. You served in the intelligence community. You talk about this corrupt echelon of guys like Brennan uh, and Clapper. What is what what's their game? Why why did they allow uh, 
Putin to pull off this, to destroy, to divide the country so badly? What are they up to? Okay. So I think at first it was just simply, so we were not like as an institution, right? We were not paying attention to Russia because we tied, we, we were tied up with other things, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, we were chasing terrorists for 20 years. Right. Okay. And uh, Gina Haspel herself, the former CIA director admitted that uh, they were just a couple of years ago trying to switch the focus to Russia. So at first, it was just inability to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? There were pockets in the intelligence community who were focused like a laser on Russia. And we were briefing, you know, the Obama administration's officials. You know, I personally briefed scores of people in the Pentagon and some of the national security staff in the Obama administration. And so the second reason is not just incompetence, but sort of um, uh, naivete, right? Obama wanted to become um, to do a reset with Putin. Right. So they didn't believe that what Putin was up to and he was actually planning this destabilizing strategy. And then closer to 2016, the, the corrupt echelons were so, you know, focused on removing President Trump, the democratically elected leader from office because they didn't like him, he wasn't part of the establishment, that they focused those resources on that and not focus on that. Instead of actually dealing with the Russian threat, they were busy, you know, um, uh, trying to manipulate intelligence and, uh, you know, focused on that steel dossier and Pfizer, you know, the whole uh, fraudulent Pfizer applications right. to uh, survey and, and all those things. So they had no bandwidth to actually focus on developing a strategy to counter the actual Russian threat. And now we're reaping the results of that strategic incompetence. So they weren't they weren't actually working with Putin. They were just allowing Putin to do what he was trying to do in order to get at Donald Trump. You mean the intelligence community yeah, working the, with Putin? Well, yeah, they, that, <laughs> I mean, they were, they, it, it was just an accidental collaboration. They weren't trying to help him uh, destroy America. They just wanted him to get, they just wanted to use him to get rid of Donald Trump. Is that, is that fair? That, I, I would say that's, uh, that's very, very fair. Okay. Although now that you, now that you raised this topic, <laughs> like you, you, you wonder, because remember, uh, the Brookings Institution and uh, where Fiona Hill, you know, came President Trump's um, advisor on Russia. And I used to respect Fiona highly, right? She's very competent on Russia. But then all of a sudden, she became the key witness to um, in uh, Trump's impeachment hearing. And then Igor Danchenko, who fed the information into Steele dossier, is basically connected to Russian intelligence. And the FBI knew that, okay? So now that you pose this question, <laughs> I'm like sitting here scratching my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't mean to accuse them. I was just trying to understand what their motives. I got are. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I got you, Andrew. Re, re, <laughs> you will be a good red team Intel analyst. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate. I appreciate. It. I'll keep that in mind for a second career. Rebecca Koffler is the author of Putin's Playbook: Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. Rebecca, that was really interesting. I really appreciate your coming on, and I, I, I hope to talk to you again. 
Of course, this was very, very uh, enjoyable for me as well. Thank you very much for having me, Andrew. Thanks a lot, Rebecca. So I already told you about Helix's new sofas, but let's go back to talking about those mattresses. Some of you are sleeping on some saggy old mattresses at night. Some of you are sleeping, but you should really be lying awake on a great Helix mattress. Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Whether you're a side sleeper, a hot sleeper, or like me, a not sleeper, there's no more confusion and no more compromising. Just go to helixsleep.com slash Clavin, take that two-minute sleep quiz, which is kind of fun, by the way, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life or, for me, the best lying awake of my life. Helix mattresses have a 10-year warranty. They're made right in America. You get to try it out. For 100 nights, risk-free, this is a good deal. They will even pick it up for you if you don't love it. But don't worry about that because you will. Right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattresses at helixsleep.com slash Clavin. Get up to $200 off at helixsleep.com slash Clavin. I know what you're thinking. $200 off? How do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. No ease. If you didn't catch it yet, the latest episode of Adam Carolla's Daily Wire exclusive comedy series, Truth Yeller, is streaming now, and it might just be the best one yet. Adam takes on Hunter Biden and is joined by comedian T.J. Miller, who drops some comedy gold. I've seen part of this. It's really funny. He proves that he is the real deal. What do I mean by that? Head to dailywire.com slash watch right now to find out. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe and use code Miller for 25% off your membership and get ready for some serious laughs. If it's true, it's probably not getting published. The Daily Wire is changing that with our own publishing wing, DW Books, and we're proud to be publishing two books that are actively fighting the left's monopoly on storytelling. The first is 12 Seconds in the Dark by Sergeant Mattingly. The book is the true story of what really happened the night of the tragic Breonna Taylor shooting. Mattingly, a 20-year police veteran, takes readers inside his department's response and debunks the lies that have recklessly been shared with the public. DW Books is also publishing Fiery but Mostly Peaceful by Julio Rosas who pulls back the curtain and sets the record straight on the Black Lives Matter riots that broke out across the country in 2020. Roses, who is reporting from the ground, gives his firsthand experience of the riots and exposes the media's attempts to convince Americans that the fatal and destructive riots were peaceful. I'm so grateful to have these brave truth-tellers on board and can't wait for you to hear their stories. Both are available for pre-order now on Amazon or anywhere you buy books online. So a lot of the conversation we've been having about the way the left and the government and the elites are behaving, it has this religious tint to it. I'm talking about the sin of pride. I'm talking about the way we react with the world and the way we judge whether our reactions are uh, wise or not. And it has, all has a religious tinge to it. And one thing I hear from conservatives a lot, from people who listen to the show, is that, oh yeah, we love the show, but stop talking about God because it excludes those of us who don't believe. And that's a trope that we have in the modern world, that you can't make an argument from God because there are so many gods, or because if I don't believe in God, then your argument makes no sense. We, we had Alan Dershowitz on the show a while back, and we had this this exchange. I'm going to play this exchange because uh, it, it really is is telling about a certain way of thinking. Lincoln made the argument that the Constitution is based on the, the Declaration, and the Declaration says our rights are given to us by God, and the government is formed 
in order to secure those rights. So if our right to free speech is given to us by God and the government is there to secure our rights, if there are free speech is taken away by Facebook, doesn't the government suddenly have the power to act in some way? I don't think I've ever said this before, but Abraham Lincoln was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Not the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights was a lawless, revolutionary document, which, of course, had to rely on God because they didn't have law on their side. Then they passed the Constitution. There's no God in the Constitution. It's all about law. I don't think you can derive rights from God because there are too many gods. There are too many interpreters of gods. There are too many ways in which God has been misused. Um, I just think you have to be more of a textualist. Now, people think that kind of attitude is just uh, logical or natural, but it actually is historical. It grows out of a certain series of historical events, namely that once the Reformation happened, Europe was racked by religious wars and religious violence. I mean, the uh, Thirty Years' War was one of the most decimating wars ever. I mean, it was just an absolutely destructive, terrible war uh, that took most of, laid waste to most of what is now uh, Germany. And at the end of it, in the treaties of Westphalia, they, they kind of reached an agreement that sort of, that said Protestantism and Catholicism are going to be equally respected. So each prince is going to be able to have whatever religion he has in his princedom and whatever the religion of that, you know, religious tolerance sort of grows out of the ideas of wanting these kinds of wars to cease. And the idea that religion should not be a a cause of war, which I agree with, you should not kill people because they don't share your religion. But there's sometimes with human beings, ideas kind of run beyond their usefulness uh, to something that may not be as logical. The, The side effect of religious tolerance is the idea that religion isn't worth, if, if religion isn't worth fighting over, well, then it certainly isn't worth arguing about, and therefore it isn't worth talking about because it has no legitimate role in the battle of ideas. To put it another way, you can't win an argument by saying God said so because whose God is it and how do I know he said so? That's a historical inheritance that we have. And I don't really think, I think there's something wrong with that attitude logically. And not, I'm not saying it, it may be fine, it may be a good way to run a country, but it logically it makes no sense. And if you just reverse it a little bit, you can start to see why it doesn't make ex- uh, sense. If we don't accept the premises that come from our shared culture, a culture which was the creation of Christianity. This is the culture formerly known as Christendom. It was created by Christianity. It is infused with Christianity. And if you don't accept those premises and share those premises, then we can't discuss things because Alan Dershowitz may believe that you can't derive rights from God, but I would argue that you can't derive rights from anything else. And and listen, does anyone really believe that morality is relative, that it's a product of evolution or history, that, you know, if if everybody in the world agreed that it was fine to kill your children uh, or kill your neighbor's children and eat them for supper, then it would suddenly be fine to do that? You know, I don't think anybody really believes that. You can argue that in philosophy class, but nobody in his heart believes that's true unless he happens to be a psychopathic killer. And that idea, that idea that there are certain ways that we should treat one another, a lot of them derive from what I call and have spoken about before on the show, the great speculation. The great speculation is that your inner life is as valuable to you as my inner life is to me, and both are equally valuable to God. That is the great speculation. So not only uh, do each of us have an inner life worth having to ourselves, but there is an objective observer, God, who says, yes, I created you. 
you're created in my image, your inner life matters to me and is equally important, whether it is the creative life of a rich man or a poor man, the creative life of a genius or a fool, doesn't matter, that life is important. And we all believe, we all have been brought up and raised into believing this by our culture, which was created by Christianity. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I always wonder at leftists, I kind of laugh at them when they talk about racism with such seriousness and such determination, and then they become racist. That doesn't surprise me at all because why were they against racism to begin with? Why would anybody be against racism? What's wrong with racism? If, I, if I'm a white guy and I outnumber the black guys, why shouldn't I defend white people? I don't do it because of the great speculation. I don't do it because I know the black guy across from me is just as important to himself as I am to me, and both of us are equally important to God. That's why I don't believe in racism, why I strongly oppose racism. I have no idea why the left opposes racism, and neither do they. That is why they can now sit around and talk about whiteness, and white people are this, and white people are that. And yes, I'm going to appoint a Supreme Court justice, and the most important thing about them is going to be a woman and a black. And that's, that's why they can say that, because they have no reason, they have no logic to why they believe that racism is bad. Now, there's a wonderful passage uh, that I, I think about all the time uh, in, the, in the Bible, in the Gospels, the first, and not the, the Gospels, the epistles. It's the first epistle of John. He says, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. In other words, we are representatives of God, and we can react, we can relate to God by relating to one another in love. And... Nobody knows who wrote the first epistle of John, but traditionally it's believed that it is connected to the gospel of John. Scholars, some, many scholars say that's not true, but I've read a lot of these scholars and I don't really respect their logic all that much. But, but I don't know. I'm not a scholar of the New Testament, but the tradition is that it comes from the same gospel that begins by saying the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The great speculation, the idea that we are equally important to God derives from that idea. It derives from the idea that the word is made flesh, that we who are made in God's image represent, represent some aspect of the spiritual world. We can't see God, but we can see each other, and the way we treat each other is, some, is a statement we make about God. And that means, you know, we were talking about when we see the world rightly, right, as opposed to when we don't see the world rightly, when we cling to our delusions because of pride, when we see the world rightly instead of wrongly, when we abandon our pride and let consequences, in fact, correct our inner experience, that we can trust that we were made by God to see the moral right, world rightly and things start to work out. In other words, we can trust ourselves to be a kind of machine that can find, you know, we talk about, when we talk about somebody's being deluded, right, that means that somebody could not be deluded because somebody could get it right. Now, what happens when we take that away? When we take that away, here's a, a, a terrific uh, philosopher, I believe a Catholic philosopher, French philosopher, named René Girard. Here's what he said about when you take that, away that trust that our moral lives, our moral opinions, our moral feelings are somehow related to God and we can get those moral opinions right. He said, once we are deprived of transcendental guideposts, supernatural guideposts, we must trust our subjective experience whether we like it or not, we are little Cartesian gods with no fixed reference and no certainty outside of ourselves, right? We only can see, we only know what we feel, right? And since modern man has no way of knowing what is going on beyond himself, since he cannot know everything, he, would, he becomes lost in a world as vast and technically complex as ours if he has no one to guide him. He no longer relies on priests and philosophers, of course, but he must rely on many other people. Nevertheless, more people 
than ever as a matter of fact. They are the experts, the people more competent than we are in innumerable fields of endeavor. Without faith that we are descended from God, made in God's image, and that we live in a moral universe that we can suss out. We may not get it right all the time. We may get it wrong, but when we get it wrong, there are consequences, and therefore we can adjust and get it right if we lay our pride aside. We only have two things left. We have our own feelings inside about who we are, which are absolutely sovereign, so we can't communicate those to anybody else because they're just our feelings, and we have the experts to tell us what's going on outside. You know, Our pal, Matt Walsh, we love, our colleague, Matt Walsh, had this big uh, kind of viral moment on Dr. Phil when he turned around and he asked a transgender person to define woman. Uh, let's, Let's just play a little bit of this. It's really quite amazing. I'm sure many of you have already seen it, but just in case. You stood up here and said trans women are women. Yes. Tell me what you mean. What is a woman? Womanhood is something that, just as Ethan explained, I cannot define because I am not but myself. you used hold, the hold. word. So what did you mean when you said trans women are women if you don't Love know what it means? Right. So here's the thing. So I do not define what a woman is because I do not identify as a woman. Womanhood is something that is an umbrella term. It includes people that who... That describes what? People who identify as a woman. I- identify as what? As a woman. What is that? was to each their own. <laughs> to each their own. That is exactly what Rene Girard is talking about. When you are disconnected from God, when you're disconnected from the transcendental experience of the supernatural, and I use that word literally to mean that which is above nature, what Walsh intrinsically understands is if your inner experience is completely sovereign, right, without reference to facts, language loses its meaning because how can I communicate to you what is only meaningful to me? So it's now, like Gerard says, we beca- it becomes impossible to comprehend a reality outside ourselves, and we are completely consumed by the reality inside ourselves. Instead of being collaborators with the world, instead of collaborating with the world, we are completely cut off from the world. It's exactly, Gerard described this, I think he was writing uh, 30, 40 years ago, he, he describes this almost exactly. It becomes impossible to comprehend reality unless the experts explain it to you. So you have guys like that talking to Walsh, saying, well, woman is whatever you think it means. That's what it means. I can use the word, but you can't define it. I can use the word, but you can't define it. So ideas mean nothing. Words mean nothing. There's absolutely no chance of communicating my inner reality to your inner reality, right? The arts can't mean anything. We, we kind of live in a, a world like uh, that hideous strength, that C.S. Lewis novel I was talking about, where they put him in a, a, a place where the art is all kind of abstract and absurd because he's, they're trying to teach him that his experience of life means nothing. His idea of love means nothing. Only the objective reality means something. Now, that objective reality is very complex and can only be explained to you by the experts. So on the one hand, you can say that I've magically turned into a woman, except you can't define woman because woman has no meaning because it only means what it means to me. But on the other hand, you can't leave the house until Anthony Fauci tells you it's safe to do it. You can't go out without a mask until Anthony Fauci says it's safe to do it, right? We The reason I talk about God and the reason I talk about in religious terms, is not just because I believe, because I could I could easily say, as so many people do say in the West, I believe, but you know, that's just me. It's my faith tradition. It's my faith tradition. But no, I don't say that to you. I say that I have faith in something that makes sense of everything I see in front of me and everything I believe in all the things that you're talking about. The fact is, Alan Dershowitz, God love him, I'm not, atta- I'm not attacking the man, I'm just saying, when he says you can't derive rights from God, I say you can't derive rights from anything else, and yet 
people have rights. And we know this through the great speculation, and the great speculation depends upon that element of God confirming that, yes, your inner life is equally important to mine. Without, this is no way around it. We can't talk about God. If we can't talk about God, we actually can't talk about anything. We can't talk about any of the things that matter to us. I, you know, I know people say they they can. I know people think they can. I know think they think that, that oh, eventually evolution is going to explain it all, and brain science is going to explain it all. And you always notice scientists are saying eventually we're going to explain it all, but they never get there, and they always change the rules as they go along because you can't do it. It is not possible. If there is no God, everything we are doing is absurd. Every value we have is a fiction. But I would say that fictions describe uh, indescribable truths, and that's what makes them powerful fictions, like the story that man have that we were made in God's image, like the story that we have rights, like the story that love is better than hatred. Those are stories we tell, but those are stories that describe the truth. In order to trust in God, we have to set aside our pride and understand that we are dependent on him for all the things we love, for all the things that matter to us. And that's why, that's why I'm not going to stop talking about God. You just have to understand the way I'm talking about him is as the founder, the founder of all human values and all human experience. So all through the show, we've been talking about one thing. What have we been talking about? We've been talking about changing our minds, deciding when we're wrong, readjusting to life so that we can get past our problems. That is why we have the essential tool for doing that, which is, of course, the mailbag. What a stupid son of a... <laughs> I knew, I knew you were going to use that one. This is the first time I've ever guessed right what you were going to put in there. Uh, all right, from Jacques. Uh, Andrew, recently during a discussion I had with my 27-year-old daughter, she asked a question that I'm ashamed to say I didn't know how to answer. I've been pondering it for weeks, and I'm still at a loss. I was expressing my belief that it's important uh, to propagate the species, and she asked why. Why is it important that the Earth be peopled? I was so stunned by her question, because it had never occurred to me, that I fumbled around and eventually clumsily landed on, I believe every baby that is born is a miracle. For further context, I was raised with little to no religion, and it was the same for my daughter. I'm only just now beginning to find my way regarding faith, and my daughter, unfortunately, seems hostile towards it. Therefore, I find myself thinking a non-theological answer, if there is one, might be more relevant here. What would you tell her? Why is this question stumping me? Thanks so much for your thoughts. That's a great question, I think. It's stumping you because you have more wisdom in your heart than you have in your head, and you're paying the penalty. You're suffering the consequences of raising your daughter without faith. If she asks you why she should have children, you should ask her why she should sing. Why should she look at sunsets or fall in love? Why should she do any of the things that are beautiful in life? Why should she appreciate beauty at all? Um, there is no material reason. Good things that, things that are good in and of themselves are good because they represent the goodness of God. That is why they're good in and of themselves. There is no reason to have children except to have children. In other words, having children is the reason for having children. Looking at a sunset is the reason for looking at a sunset. Listening to music is the reason for listening to music. These are things that are good in themselves. And because uh, she is living a materialist life, right? This is this is the big divide. The big divide is not actually between Protestant and Catholic uh, or, Jew- or even Jewish. The big divide is between uh, spiritual and materialistic. The idea that there is a supernatural, that there is a level of meaning above the natural, or that there's not. This is it. And the, the people, as I have said again and again, the people who are materialists do not accept the ramifications, the consequences, the logical uh, conclusions that you have to draw 
from materialism, namely the conclusions drawn by the Marquis de Sade that it might be fun to rape and kill people, so why not do it? In the same sense, why would you have children? Why should you have children? You have children because they are children. You have children because that's what you're here to do. You have children because your body demands it and because life demands it and because life is good. Those are all the reasons. It's the, you do have children for the same reasons you sing songs and for the same reason you listen to songs being sung and for the same reason you appreciate beauty and what, look at sunsets. And you, you cannot explain that to her in a way without understanding that there is a good there is something that is good that is beyond material. Uh, from Tyrus, Dear Andrew, I've recently started reading your books. What a guy. Uh, <laughs> wow, they are so good. It started with When Christmas Comes and then moved on to Shotgun Alley, and now I'm looking for my next book to devour. Uh, Shotgun Alley is the middle of a trilogy, by the way. There's Dynamite Road on one side and Damnation Street on the other. And uh, it's, I'm really proud of that trilogy, so you might enjoy it. I know I can buy the books online, which is what I'll end up doing, but I enjoy buying books in a store. Why don't booksellers have any of your books in stock? Is this a personal decision by yourself and your publisher? Is there more going on here? I feel if your books had the advertising that James Patterson books did, uh, they'd be just as popular. Am I crazy? A, a little crazy. I mean, James Patterson does a very uh, different thing than I do, and I'm writing books that are, uh, in a way, quite quirky and original. I tried them. I try to make them thrilling. I hope you find them thrilling, uh, but they are also quite different than what uh, Patterson is doing. And I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying uh, that they are different and they are not geared to be the most popular books. They're geared to be the best. And that's a very, very different thing. Uh, that's why I, I created them to make them beautiful, not to make them popular. So uh, bookstores, um, you know, do, do carry them and you can find them, but I'm once I started becoming a, a, an open conservative, I've had bookstores write to me and tell me we're taking your books out of our stores. Uh, on the paperback of Empire of Lies, I think Glenn Beck gave me a quote, and a bookstore uh, wrote to me and said, if you hadn't put Glenn Beck on this, we might have carried it, but Glenn Beck, we're not going to carry any book that has Glenn Beck quote on it. And I said, listen, I'm well aware of the small-mindedness of bookstores, so do what you're going to do. But that's one of the reasons why it's hard to find my books. And uh, But you can find them online, and I hope you will. And you can find them in bookstores if they're really good bookstores. Uh, from Kerry, oh, great Sheik of Clavenon, I beseech thee, I've recently met and become engaged to the love of my life. Um, this is this is Carrie with an I, so I guess this is a lady. This, yes, this is a man who gives body to all my hopes and dreams. I've never been happier. Uh, I can see in his face and his behavior that he's as crazy about me as I am about him. I am 25. I'm still a virgin. He is not. I was raised to treasure and value the act of sex as a thing sacred between husband and wife. He has been very frank with me about his previous sexual experience, and I'm not a and I'm not afraid that he will cheat on me. But as I get closer to my wedding night, the idea that the act of sex with him uh, could be so sacred to me and that I'm only another notch in his belt has really begun to prey on my mind. How can I get around the feeling that after all, the other things are put aside? All I as a woman really am is a sex toy, just like any other. How can he really love and belong to me with so many other women in his mind? Uh, you're making no sense. That does, What you're saying makes no sense. You're being neurotic. Uh, you're probably experiencing... Uh, anxiety about your wedding night, uh, and you're you're making you what you're saying. What that, that letter literally makes no sense. He's marrying you, and if I'm taking you at your word that he's not going to cheat on you, that he loves you, you say he loves you, and you say he's not going to cheat on you. I'm taking you at your word, and I believe you. I believe that that is the case. So he's giving up all others. He is marrying you to live with you day after day, and what you're saying is that that somehow makes you a sex toy. Uh, you know, the past is past. He can't go back and erase the women he slept with. Uh, that's what he, that was how he lived his life. 
whatever else you say about him, it made him the person you love today. Uh, it brought him into your life, in, into the place where you could marry him. You are not, his love for you, you're kind, of, you're kind of following materialist logic in a way. You're thinking his love for you just grows out of his sexual attraction to you. I'm sure he is sexually attracted to you, but he also loves you, which is different. It is not just uh, an aspect of a sexual attraction to you. He loves you. He loves who you are. And so he is willing to say, that part of my life is over. This part of my life is beginning. This part where I'm a faithful husband, hopefully a, a father, uh, and we build a family together and we live together. That's a, that's a really, you know, you are giving him a precious thing, which is yourself, not just your body, but you're giving him yourself. And he is giving you a precious thing, which is his himself, his loyalty, his faithfulness to you. And uh, there's absolutely no reason to think you know, you could make the argument the other way that because he has had experience, he won't be tempted to cheat on you because he already knows what else is out there, which is a perfectly fine argument. Pretty girls are always a temptation, but I think I agree. I believe you that he's not going to cheat on you. So you, you really have nothing to worry about. You have to forget the past. I understand you're feeling jealous about those other women. That That's perfectly natural. But most many people have that experience, and you just have to let the past go and begin from here. You really have to let this go. You have to do it as a conscious effort. Uh, you have to teach yourself to do it. You don't have to. You shouldn't take it out on him. You shouldn't make him convince you to do it. You have to do it. You have to let his past go and enjoy this new adventure that you both are having in your life. Uh, from Howard, from time to time, some of us go back and reread the classics. I do this a lot. Uh, I have a long list of classics I'd like to read a second time now that I'm retired and have a bit more time to devote to reading, which makes me wonder, do you ever go back and reread the books you have authored? Oh, that's okay. That was a surprise question. Um, I occasionally read portions of what I have written. Tell you my experience. <laughs> I'll tell you my experience. Every time I read a book that I wrote in the past, every time I have the same experience, I read it and I think, wow, I was great then. I could really write. What happened to me? How <laughs> How, where did my talent go? I was so great then. And it doesn't matter when the book was written. It could have been written last week. I say the same, oh man, now I stink. And then I was great. Uh, so, so, so it's not really all that useful for me to read, uh, go back in the past. When I'm writing a series as I am now with uh, the sequels to When Christmas Comes, the Cameron Winter books, I go back and read it to catch up with the character, to remind myself of who the character is, to remind myself of his thoughts, what he was thinking the last time I saw him and all that. But I rarely, you know, by the time I, a book comes out, I have read it from cover to cover, maybe 20 times. I mean, I've read it a lot of times. So when I go back and look at it, I really remember it well. It's not like I think like, oh, I don't remember writing that. I mean, I've, I've read these books a lot. I am a, a inveterate rewriter. I do nothing but rewrite books. Um, so, you know, I, I don't really go back and, and read them cover to cover, but I do go back from time to time and think, how did I do that? How did I accomplish that? <laughs> Every time I beat myself up about it and I always think like I, I had more uh, skill then than I have now, which really isn't true. It, it, it can't possibly be true. I've learned so much from each book uh, that I think I've just uh, improved. You know, I've got become more and more professional. There are There is one thing, there is one thing that I, you lose over time that I have become a much I, I believe a much deeper and uh, broader writer, but that kind of youthful thing that you have when you first start out, that uh, uh, you can't recreate. You can, you can imitate it from time to time, but you can't just capture again 
uh, the, the zing of youth, but you get something else in return, which is the wisdom uh, and the depth of old age. All right, I have got to stop there. However, that just that's it's not a bad thing. It just means you're going to be plunged into a blackness that's unimaginable, where there'll be wailing, gnashing of teeth, broken glass, fires. You know, yeah, it's a disaster. Will you survive? <laughs> I wouldn't count on it. But if you should, if you should, we will be back here next Friday with the Andrew Claven Show. I'm Andrew Claven. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thank you for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Lisa Bacon, executive producer Jeremy Boring, our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Wadowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. Our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Joe Biden officially nominates a generic black woman to the Supreme Court. Howard Stern defends censorship of Joe Rogan. And a Loudoun County judge lets a 15-year-old serial rapist off the hook. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.